Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charlotte Setiadi. I'm an assistant professor of humanities at Singapore Management University. With a huge local market and growing production power, the Indonesian film industry has enormous potential. Yet the story of Indonesian cinema is largely untold. From the dark years of the 1990s when very few local films were made, the Indonesian film industry underwent a revival that saw an exponential increase in production to an average of 120 films per year in the last decade. This growth was driven by a combination of cheap digital technology and the wholesale rebuilding of a mainstream film industry that attracted both local and international audiences. In recent years, the Indonesian film industry has been largely dominated by genres such as horror, teen romance, and Islamic drama. However, market demand is always changing in accordance to socio-cultural trends. At the same time, Indonesian films, directors, actors, and other industry professionals are becoming more well-known around the world, not in small part due to a more integrated regional and global distribution network and web-based streaming services such as Netflix and HBO Go. Internationally successful films such as The Raid Redemption put actors such as Iko Uwais and Joe Taslim on Hollywood's radar, and this increased attention has resulted in greater international interest in collaborations and co-productions such as the recent film Mal 22 that featured Iko Uwais and Hollywood action star Mark Wahlberg. With these recent developments, what is the true potential of Indonesian films? Could Indonesian films be utilized as a soft power tool to increase Indonesia's influence in regional and global cultural scenes? Furthermore, what are some of the market trends that may define the growth of the Indonesian film industry in the coming years? To discuss recent trends in Indonesian cinema, I speak with Dr. Thomas Barker. Thomas is an associate professor and head of film and television at the University of Nottingham Malaysia campus. He was previously a visiting scholar at UCLA, National Chengchi University in Taiwan, and Universitas Indonesia in Jakarta. Thomas researches and writes on Indonesian and Malaysian films and cultural industries, especially their transnational dimensions. His monograph, Indonesian Cinema After the New Order, Going Mainstream, is forthcoming with Hong Kong University Press. So Thomas Barker, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Great, and congratulations for your forthcoming book. Uh, Very much looking forward to reading it. For the benefit of our listeners who may not know very much about uh, Indonesian cinema and the history of Indonesian cinema, uh, perhaps you can um, give us a bit of a run-through of recent developments in Indonesian cinema, and particularly in the post-Suarto period that your research predominantly focuses on. Yeah, sure. Um... I mean, Indonesian cinema is perhaps one of the great untold stories of, of uh, world cinema or Asian cinema. Uh, it it kind of sits on the periphery of people's um, kind of perception understanding, right? If we if we think about Asian cinema, we tend to think more of South Korea or Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, even. Um, and Indonesia is really the the country whose film industry has undergone a phenomenal uh, rebirth um, in the last twenty years. Um, but it hasn't really received much attention um, in in mainstream press or even in academic writing. Why is uh, that? Do you think? Partly, um, um, cinema and the study of and, and cultural studies is kind of not super mainstream. I think uh, 
there has been this concentration on other growing film industries, such as China, for example. Um, and those people working on Indonesian cinema, um, there's probably a, a dozen of us in the world. Um, many of many of them are, are Indonesians and writing in Indonesian. Um, and those of us writing in English um, were kind of graduate students um, in the early 2000s and, and only now kind of really getting publications out um, and talking much more about Indonesian cinema. And also because in the 1990s, um, Indonesian cinema essentially went into a, a into a decline. It was a moribund industry. There was very little output, um, and it didn't attract that much attention. And um, it's only now, I, I guess, um, with Indonesia's uh, democratization and liberalization, that that the cinema and the cultural industries more broadly uh, have become much more interesting. Um, so to go back a little bit, uh, in the 1990s. Uh, we had a figure like Garin Negroho, who was uh, perhaps Indonesia's uh, most prominent filmmaker, but only a single person. And he was he was doing something really different um, in his films, uh, going to film festivals. Um, but he was operating under the New Order regime, which was uh, quite quite strict in its in its in the way in which it regulated uh, cultural production, uh, both t- you know television, film, uh, and other forms like theatre, for example. Um, but with the essentially, people date the, this this rebirth of the Indonesian film, Indonesian film industry to May or to 1998 and Reformasi 20 years ago, uh, and the, the the arrival of this film called Kuldasak, uh, which was made by four young directors: uh, Rizal Mantovani, Ribri Riza, Nan Aknas, and Mira Leswana. But they had begun producing that film back in 1996, and they themselves were the product of. Uh, the, the the growing TV industries in the 1990s. So as the film industry went into decline in the 1990s, uh, the TV industry really took off. And young creative uh, media producers uh, moved into TV, often doing uh, music video, advertising, uh, Sinetron, and other kind of products. And um, these four um, met in the 1990s. They knew each other and decided they wanted to make this feature film. And that film came out uh, in November 1998. Um, it was uh, an omnibus for directors. Um, I, I remember was, this film. This this probably reveals just how old how old I am now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember it was, this. It was significant. I mean, it, it was it, it came six months after Sahata resigned, um, and and people yeah young people at the time who were in their in their late teens and twenties um, yeah went to the cinema to see this this film that really captured the spirit of the time, their frustration, their anger. Um, and their desire to, to create new new images for for new Indonesia. Before before uh, you go on, uh, Thomas, uh, to talk yeah. about the post nineteen ninety eight landscape, you mentioned a few times about the rebirth of uh, Indonesian cinema, right? Can you go? Uh, can I ask you just to go a little bit further back uh, to to explain a little bit about why Indonesian film uh, was uh, in decline to begin with? What caused the decline? Um, that that it sort of necessitated a. a Reshock or a restart to to the system. Sure, sure. Um, so the seventies and eighties were a real golden era for, for popular Indonesian cinema, and we saw the emergence of, of very famous actors, actresses, filmmakers, uh, uh, and other franchises like the Watercop uh, and the Benjamin, Benjamin S. films, Susanna. Um, and in the seventies and eighties, uh, Indonesian cinema was a real vibrant pop culture, um, and there was a, a great network of cinemas throughout the archipelago. There was uh, mobile cinemas, Layar Tanjap. Uh, and Layar Tanjap was kind of like of, the, uh, a makeshift uh, cinema, usually like in in soccer fields and, and near right, village yeah. centers. Yeah, 
That's right. And and so it was a real part of, of, of the, the people's culture um, at the time. Now, what began to happen in the 1980s was that the New Order regime began to crack down on, on the cinema to some extent. Um, there was kind of these, uh, these new regulations introduced. Um, the, there was the rise of the 21 group, the, the dominant cinema chain, which began to favor uh, Hollywood films and locked out uh, local films uh, from the cinemas and began to eat up some of these cinemas. Um, and local films were really pushed into the periphery and the, and the, the, the cinemas with the low, low ticket costs. And so producers who were mostly based in Jakarta couldn't really make money um, from film anymore. They couldn't invest, they couldn't innovate. Um, but at the same time, in the late 90s and early, uh, sorry, late 80s and early 90s, um, uh, Sahaja's government introduced private uh, television broadcasting. Now, these, these licenses and ownership was with his family and cronies, but the, these new TV stations were so voracious in their hunger for content that um, all these filmmakers who were essentially not, not really working that much or maybe making a film a year or two films a year could move into TV where they could make so much more money and make so much more content. Um, and with the 21 group dominating um, in these new shopping malls uh, and showing Hollywood film, Essentially, what then happened with the local film industry was that the, the few remaining producers and few remaining filmmakers turned to uh, these kinds of uh, soft porn or erotic kind of films. And so in the 1990s, production dropped uh, to 30, 20 titles, 10 titles a year. Um, and really only in these re very low um, peripheral, uh, very cheap, low-class uh, cinemas. And so it's, local films really moved out of uh, the cultural mainstream. Um, and young audiences growing up in the late 90s, um, they found their pop culture, they, they found their entertainment on TV, in music video, pop music, but also Hollywood film. Indonesian films were pushed out of the, the mainstream cinemas where the ticket prices were higher, the returns would have been better, and producers just couldn't make money. And so there was a film, very famous case uh, in 1990, um, uh, Langitku, the Eros Jarot film, um, My Sky, My Home, uh, which, um, tried to get into 21 cinemas, was pushed out by 21, despite there being a, a, a quota system in place. They took 21 to court, um, and essentially 21 were, were protected by the, by the state. Um, and this really marked the, the end of, of Indonesian cinema's ability, or Indonesian film's ability to get into these 21 cinemas. And if you go to Indonesia today, the 21 cinemas are still the dominant cinema chain in the country. Right. Um, they had a real stranglehold over over the, the first run air conditioned shopping mall uh, cinemas, uh, where where young people wanted to go and hang out. Right. I mean, this is in the nineties was the birth of of that consumer culture of of shopping malls. Um, you know those those kinds of, of activities. Right. Okay. That's very interesting. Like how the Indonesian film industry was very much tied to societal trends at that time, and also like oh, the political sure. yeah the the political developments at that time. So after 1998, so this also affected the Indonesian film industry, um, as particularly I guess with the deregulation of the industry. Yeah. So um, with with the end of the New Order regime in 1998, um, and this process of of uh, uh, I, I guess the state in retreat. Um, yeah, people could begin to make make uh, cultural uh, products, make make media as they kind of wanted to, and you saw this real explosion in in expression, in publications, in books, in magazines, in newspapers, short film, and also feature film. Now, of course, feature films. Uh, 
require a lot of skill to make. They require a lot of investment and money, and they require time. And so, um, so in those early years of Reformasi, 1999, 2000, 2001, we only see a handful of films being made, but they're, they're films made by people with real passion. They're kind of indie projects. These are these are people who just want to. Uh, they're, they're utilizing new digital technologies that have come online, and so we get the emergence of, of young, active, and, and uh, innovative filmmakers like Rudy Sujarwo and Monty Tiwa. These young filmmakers, um, yeah, emerge from all over the place. Uh, some came out of IKJ, the film school. Some came back from studying overseas. Some uh, didn't even study film, but they just went out and started making films. Um, kind of with that indie uh, spirit. Um, and really interesting stuff came out, but it was also hard to get distributed um, and hard to get audiences. Um, now, 21 cinemas after 1998 embraced um, Indonesian cinema, and they, uh, after Kuldasak, uh, really opened up the door to, to Indonesian films playing in 21 again. All these new films began to, to, to get into the cinemas. Now, not everyone, um, I mean, young audiences didn't necessarily pick up on them immediately, but they, but they began to discover, rediscover Indonesian cinema, both in the cinema, but also on, on BCD and DVD. As the audience went back to the cinema, this meant money would go back to the, the producers, and if you could make a profit on your film, then you can make your next film, and, and it, it took off from there. Do they make profit, though, Indonesian films that were made during this time? Uh, some, but because there was such excitement, lots of people wanted to invest in film. Um, so lots of private investors emerged in this period, and you didn't have to spend that much on, on a film, uh, really. Um, so lots of lots of these young filmmakers were then able to, to, to find money from friends, from family, from from interested investors um, all over the place. Um, and there was also the, the big production companies, um, uh, such as Multivision Plus, Rappi Film, uh, and a few others, um, who were still largely operating in television, um, but they were beginning to also make their comeback into film too. And these young, young indie filmmakers um, began eventually to turn to these old production companies for production capital. Um, and so uh, as, as, the, as production grew and as, as production was systematized, uh, more and more of the production was, would, would come out of and this kind of collaboration between this new, young, creative talent and also this older group of, of established uh, media capital. From memory, Thomas, so I remember, like, and those familiar with uh, with Indonesia, particularly the cultural industry in the yep. immediate post-1998 world, uh, the, the big film that, that came out from that period is, of course, Ada Apa Dengan Cinta uh, right. by Rudy Sujarwo. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, and and that sort of like marked the the sort of revival of the Indonesian film industry. But very soon after that, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, the the films that were produced by these young uh, filmmakers, uh, backed by these um, big Indonesian production houses uh, that you mentioned before, started became quite formulaic uh, in a sense that um, a lot of people noticed. And well, you know, Indonesian films after that. Uh, quickly became boring again with mostly horror films and also uh, teenage romantic comedies. Is this assessment correct? Was, uh, was that uh, you know, pretty much what happened uh, you know, within a few years of the uh, revival of the Indonesian film industry? Yeah, I mean, you could say that in, in one respect is that as the, 
as the film industry became mainstream and appealed to that mainstream audience, it, it needed to return to those those kind of classic genres, right, of the, the romance, the high school romance film, the horror film, the family drama, um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, there, there was this this uh, mainstreaming of, of film, and therefore it's, in some cases, it became somewhat indistinguishable from Sinatron, right? This is, is often a, a, a criticism. So Sinatron is um, basically soap operas, opera. yeah. Right. And so um, that was part of it. But I think I think one viewpoint um, doesn't take into account the, the kind of innovation happening in those genres. Um, having watched almost all those horror films, um, I can tell you that, yes, there's a lot of formulaic uh, repetition in them, but there's also a lot of young filmmakers who are innovating within that horror genre. And in fact, one of the first films to be banned, first, in fact, the first Indonesian film to be banned after 1998 was a horror film um, because it, it was... Um, it took as its subject matter the May 1998 riots. Um, and so the horror films, um, some were formulaic, but also some were really dealing with really important um, social issues of, of, of uh, social violence, of trauma, um, of, of questioning um, ghosts from the past, um, and these kinds of, of kinds of themes. And many of the film directors also came out of music video, right? And they were, they were reinventing the horror genre um, in, in new and interesting ways. And so um, Jalangkung, which was the first horror film from around year 2000, um, was even, um, the, the directors were flown into Hollywood, um, and Hollywood was interested in doing a remake in the early 2000s. Um, wow. And that's kind of how innovative um, these, these filmmakers were. And did the market react to them? Uh, did we see a spike or, or at least an, an increase in um, local audiences' interest towards local films, uh, you know, with the arrival of these new genres of films? Oh yeah, for sure. Because uh, because I I, th I think that um, young audiences, these were people who had come of age through 1998 or in the early 2000s, were not so much interested in what was on television, right? If you watch Indonesian television, um, I don't think its audience is primarily young uh, young people um, in Indonesia. Um, and so I think the youth looking for themselves, right? Looking for looking for characters that reflected who they were and, and issues and themes that they wanted to engage with, they found it in the cinema. Um, and they've become the, the real um, drivers, the real audience, uh, the consumers of this new cinema. So what about market trends, you know, in Indonesia in terms of the cinema after after that period, right? So now, you know, that it's been 20 years um, right. since the restart and the rebirth of Indonesian cinema. What are some of the newer trends, uh, both in terms of market demands and, I guess, uh, relatedly, uh, the themes that have emerged in, um, in, in more recent Indonesian cinema that, that you've observed? Right, so um, I, you could start with, with the Arapareng and Chinta phenomena. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, we had the, the sequel, Arapareng and Chinta Dua, right? Uh, Nicolas Saputra and Dian Sastro reunite on the, on the screen in this kind of nostalgic um, follow-up to the first film. So there was about 15 years before, between the first year film and the, and the second film. So I think we're, we're also seeing a, a, a maturation of the, of the audience. Um, so you have a young audience who are in their late teens, early 20s, but you also have an audience of Indonesian cinema who are now in their 30s, um, who, are, you know, who are working adults. So we're, we're seeing, a, a, I think, an expansion of the, the market for Indonesian cinema. Um, and the recent production that um, Miroles Mana and Riri Riza are doing, um, and they were behind Adapari Dengan Cinta, um, is a remake of a, of a Korean film called uh, Free. Uh, the Indonesian title is Bebas. Oh, sorry, the, the Korean title is Sunny. 
Um, and this also deals with a group of, of working adults who who uh, have uh, who look back on their high school time. Um, so I think there, we're also seeing this broadening of the audience. Um, Secondly, I mean, since 2008 and since Ayat Ayat Chinta, um, Verses of Love, we're seeing the, the, the emergence of this Islamic pop culture, uh, Islamic pop cinema. Um, Ariel Herianto has written about this, um, as has Inaya Rachmani. And these are, these are films that, that are kind of saturated in Islamic uh, content and symbols and deal with um, themes such as, as uh, polygamy, uh, such as uh, terrorism in, in some cases, such as veiling, um, such as uh, women uh, doing hijab business, um, these kinds of themes. Um, and these, these have been particularly successful. And, and the, we've seen this emergence of a, of a kind of Islamic uh, market uh, niche or, or, or fraction as well. As, um, as, as young Indonesians who are re-identifying with, with their religion also want to see that reflected on screen. From a political economy point of view, Thomas, so these new sort of more conservative Islamic uh, films uh, that have been produced recently, are they being backed financially by the same production houses that have dominated the Indonesian film industry in the last 20 years? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, what's really interesting is is that the film industry is a commercial industry, and so um, so the companies behind it are commercially minded, and they see. I think they see these these opportunities as as really just uh, new markets to exploit. Um, there are some film producers who are who take it as a kind of religious mission, or, or um, you know, for religious propagation purposes. But I think broadly, the the, the main mainstream companies are in it for the money. But at the same time, also the filmmakers, um, and for example, Hanung, director Hanung Bermantio has become one of the key uh, directors of this genre. He himself is not um, very uh, pious or strict uh, kind of uh, Muslim himself. And so he, he makes films that are much more nuanced and much more, uh, I think, uh, supportive of, of that kind of diversity and unity kind of theme of a, a kind of middle way um, of a kind of more moderate Islamic uh, image. And so watching, seeing Hanung Bramantio's work, and he was the director behind Ayat Ayat Chinta, if you follow his, his Islamic film work, he's, he's been involved in about 10 films in the last 10 years. It's really interesting to see the diversity of, of images and ideas that he puts forward in this genre. To sort of follow on from uh, what we were just talking about before, about sort of the, the growing uh, prominence of Islamic themes in Indonesian uh, cinema, do you think this broadens up the appeal of Indonesian films abroad? Like I'm thinking, uh, for instance, to uh, neighboring Malaysia or to the Indonesian diaspora abroad in the Middle East. Um, do we see growing presence, uh, or at least a presence, of Indonesian Indonesian films abroad, and what sort of films are popular abroad, if any? So yeah, um, so yeah, so I live in Malaysia, and there is, there are Indonesian films playing in the cinemas here, but not everything. Only some titles make it here, um, and there is a market certainly here in Malaysia because of the shared cultural and linguistic um, uh, heritage that that the two countries have. There is some market also in Singapore um, for Indonesian films. Um, there may be market in diaspora. I'm not. Uh, I don't know that much about that. But what's what's been really happening in terms of Indonesian cinema and a kind of global audience has been through streaming platforms such as Netflix, uh, HBO, View, and others. Um, and especially through um, since in 2011 when this film called The Raid, uh, The Raid Redemption um, was released. It was an action film. Uh, shot in Jakarta with uh, Iko Uwais uh, and Joe Taslim in, in, the, in the key roles. 
Um, and this film was was uh, re released by Sony Pictures in the US and then uh, to I think over ten or twenty markets worldwide. Um, and it really put Indonesian um, an Indonesian cinema on on this kind of world map. Um, and it was it was the the, the action genre. Um, and Joe, and Eco US has gone on to to feature and star in a number of other um, mostly Hollywood productions, uh, including. Uh, Mile 22, uh, Beyond Skyline. Um, he's going to. He will appear in a Netflix series called Wu Assassins this year. Uh, Joe Taslim uh, also uh, had a feature. Had roles in Fast and Furious 6, uh, and also Star Trek Beyond. Um, and so uh, Indonesia's kind of gaining a reputation, especially Eco US. Yuyun Rahiyun, I forget his name, um, as choreographers. Um, in this kind of new action cinema as well. So I think that's where Indonesian cinema is finding its new audience is actually um, amongst uh, action aficionados um, and also other people looking at, at this kind of new action cinema. So in terms of attention from uh, other film industries, from Hollywood, from, you know, from other big industries um, around the world, um, and in terms of transnational collaboration, uh, we see countries such as Malaysia that you've written about as well, um, and also Thailand, so Southeast Asian cinema industries, collaborating with international partners, and uh, in particular from China here, that has been um, receiving quite a bit of attention lately, uh, for joint film ventures, right? Right. Do we see the same trend uh, as well with the Indonesian film industry and have uh, Indonesian directors uh, and producers collaborate with international partners? Yeah, so the, the Indonesian story here is really interesting. Um, and it's not just a one-way story either. It's not just the foreign partner coming, arriving in Indonesia and making a film. Um, but there's actually a, a number of Indonesian filmmakers who, who are going out themselves to really engage with, with uh, global partners, with, with other production houses and, and people overseas. But the story is kind of complex. Um, so in, in since the 1990s and Garden Nugroho and then in the early 2000s, Indonesian filmmakers really uh, began to engage with international film festivals, um, such as Busan in South Korea, Rotterdam, um, and uh, most recently um, when Muli Surya's film Marlena the Murderer uh, won at Cannes, or didn't win, but screened at Cannes um, uh, in 2017, there's been this real engagement with international film festivals. Now, um, at the same time, those, those filmmakers who have gone to the festivals begin to understand the global market. They make networks and, and connections with, with producers and buyers and others overseas. And they begin to really cultivate um, very important connections with international partners. So that's part of it. Um, and this, um, we can see this in the career of Joko Anwar, for example, um, who's become one of the, the real uh, standout uh, film directors and film writers um, of this generation. Um, he made a number of features at home. Um, he wrote Arasan, this, this gay uh, uh, comedy. He wrote and directed Junji Johnny um, and a number of kind of noir films, uh, including The Forbidden Door, Pinto de Larang. But in 2015, he, he pitched a film to the, at, at the Asian uh, production market, I think it's called, at Busan, and won a production grant from CJ Entertainment. And CJ Entertainment is one of the biggest uh, kind of media companies in South Korea. And with that money, he made a film called A Copy of My Mind. And that film then went on to, to screen at, at festivals across the world. I think it premiered in Venice, um, probably Toronto and other festivals. And because of that, Joko Anwar began to pick up 
uh, more contacts and, and more jobs uh, from these other international partners looking to, to take advantage of Indonesia's growth and its huge market. So he was chosen as the first director for HBO Asia's first uh, kind of Southeast Asia uh, miniseries called Half Worlds in 2015. Uh, he made a horror film uh, called uh, Satan Slaves, a remake of an old Indonesian horror film, but it was co-produced with CJ Entertainment. And CJ, and CJ uh, then distributed the film internationally uh, to, I think, 40 territories or something. Um, so CJ Entertainment from South Korea have become a real player in Indonesian film production now. Um, they produce a lot of, they co-produce a lot of domestic features. Um, they're doing one at the moment. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Sunny uh, Bebas um, with uh, Mirales Mana and Riri Riza. So that's one kind of story. The other one is the Hollywood story. Um, so back in, in 2011, uh, Hollywood kind of arrived in Indonesia with Eat, Pray, Love, right? This uh, Hollywood uh, big budget feature film starring, um, uh, what's her name? Julia Roberts, thank you. Um, and so she goes to in Italy, India, and Indonesia to, to kind of find herself. And this is a kind of a typical Hollywood production. Indonesia just features as the location. It's quite Orientalist. Um, and the main character is really still the white, the white woman. And over, but over time, Hollywood, Hollywood also begins to, to make more films in Indonesia. Um, they make, uh, there's this Black Hat film from Michael Mann. There is Beyond Skyline with Iko Uwais. Um, and so the, increasingly the Indonesian component of these films increases. Um, so Hollywood is, is, has, has this kind of deepening engagement with Indonesia as well. In terms of, um, you know, the, the potential of Indonesian films, right? Uh, at the beginning of this uh, chat, you were talking about how um, Indonesian cinema is, you know, sort of one of the great untold stories of the world uh, cinema industries, right? Um, in terms of the potential, one, for Indonesia to be, I guess, the leader of the film industry in Southeast Asia, um, I'm interested to see your opinion about that. Um, and also in terms of um, the soft power potential of Indonesian films, right? Uh, Indonesia, uh, in, in, in a number of ways, are, are trying to increase its prestige uh, abroad, uh, its, its, its influence abroad. Um, what do you think is the potential here for Indonesian films uh, and Indonesian film uh, talent to uh, influence regional and global cultural flows? Yeah, that's a, it's a it's a tricky one. Um, I think it's I, I don't think so. So Indonesia has really gone from from really no exposure, I would say, to 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 becoming a part of these global circulations. Um, so we see it in in actors and actresses. Um, I mean, in Hollywood, such as Iko Uwais and Joe Taslim. Regionally, regionally, with actors such as Ario Bayu and Asmara Abigail, um, and other actors like this. Um, we see it also in terms of, of a growing presence on Netflix, um, and also Penchat Silat actually um, as a as a kind of the, the new kung fu in a sense, um, especially through Iko Uwais and, and others. That Indonesia is getting this reputation and um, as this this the next kind of place of the, the next action kind of cinema. The, the risk is, or I guess, what may happen is that Indonesia is is somewhat pigeonholed. Right, as, as, a, as a kind of action cinema uh, country and, and not much else, right? Um, because it is hard to, to get films to, to cross borders and translate and so on and so forth. Um, in a world where, where Hollywood is still perceptual, it is still quite dominant in that sense. So I, I don't see Indonesia 
cinema toppling uh, uh, Hollywood anytime. I don't see. Um, I mean, I, I guess I don't really see Indonesian cinema being as popular as, say, Hong Kong cinema was, for example, in the seventies and eighties. Um, but I think I think there is a there is a certainly regionally uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. There is a, a, a growing sense of collaboration and a growing sense of a shared market. Um, as well, so Singapore tends to, to play the role of, of uh, kind of production hub. Um, this is where Netflix and HBO are based. Um, Indonesia really brings, I think, the creative talent, the actors, the, the choreographers, the, 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 the cinematographers, the writers, um, as well. So um, I think you'll see increased uh, movements of, of people um, between the, the kind of three countries. Um, as well, I think probably also the the South Korea Indonesian connection is really interesting and may may um, grow in, in in time to come. Um, but this is I, I think South Korea has has on the back of the Hallyu the, the Korean wave probably is has the, the stronger soft power um, advantage in that relationship. Um, but Indonesia, I think, also is becoming very attractive, right? I mean, like you say, the, the population of 260-odd million people is a huge market, um, and it's the fourth largest national population in the world. Um, and it is much more open and, 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 uh, and kind of liberal in, some, in many ways compared to the other two big markets, which is China and India, right? So a lot of companies, a lot of people are coming to Indonesia to, to, to tap into that market, to, to buy content, lock up content. Um, and take advantage of, and you know, be, be the first mover into this market. So there's a real squeeze on at the moment, actually, and a real race um, to 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 contract people and contract content, um, both both back catalogs, but also future content. Um, so this is really exciting, but it puts a real squeeze, I think, on on Indonesian talent. Um, and I, the the problem in Indonesia um, has been and continues to be essentially the education system, right? Especially in film and media. So IKJ, the, the... Jakarta the, Institute of Arts. Thank you. Um, Jakarta Institute of Arts, where many of these young filmmakers graduated from, um, remains still the, one of the premier film schools in the country. There's a few new ones, uh, Binos University and uh, University Multimedia Nusantara um, and ISI, for example. Um, but essentially, they can't produce enough people uh, to fill these jobs. Um, especially with this booming TV industry. I mean, there's, there's, there's 10 or 15 TV channels. There's just so much um, content being made that, that there's such a demand for talent, uh, for people who can make film and write film and shoot film. People talk about the need for this, this kind of investment and, and reform of the education system to really boost the, the production, the, the output of, of of graduates who can who can work in these new industries. Great, sounds like um, you know it's very exciting times for the Indonesian film industry, Thomas. And thank you so much for outlining some of the most recent developments for us, uh, particularly the transnational aspect of um, the Indonesian film industry that many of our listeners don't know very much about. Um, so congratulations again for your book, uh, Indonesian Cinema uh, in the Post New Order World, uh, going mainstream, uh, published by the Hong Kong University Press. Um, and thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us uh, for today's episode. No problem. It's been my pleasure. That was Associate Professor Thomas Barker from University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. Thomas's book, Indonesian Cinema After the New Order, Going Mainstream, is published by Hong Kong University Press and will be available in the next few weeks. Talking Indonesia will return on the 30th of May with our host, Dave McRae. 
Remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Charlotte Setiadi for the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.